All right. Well, good morning and welcome. Thanks for enduring the technical difficulty. Uh, now you know what it's like to be on the live stream every Sunday uh, when things start to glitch out. So, so for you on the live stream, everything's working great for you and everybody else is wondering why aren't the screens working. So uh, good morning and welcome. It is uh, good uh, to be together in this time. Thank you for joining us online and participating in this time as well. Uh, let's go ahead and um, start with a prayer as I try to catch my breath apparently. So God, we thank you so much for this morning and uh, the blessings that you give us. God, I just pray that uh, you, you eliminate the distractions, you eliminate the things uh, that get in the way of us hearing your voice. God, give us ears to hear. Help us uh, through this time. Help us through this time in your word. Um, speak to us, encourage us, challenge us. Uh, help us through this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are kicking off a new series today, and uh, I want to make sure that everybody has a Bible with them. We are, by some standards, we are going to be going into a deeper study than we usually do. Um, by other standards, we're, we're just barely skimming the surface, right? So, so depending on where you're approaching Romans from, you're going to be approaching this at very different places. Uh, but I want to make sure you do have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there are some on the table in the back. If you're, if you're online, make sure you've got your Bible with you and be opening up to Romans chapter 16. If you have it on your device or uh, phone or whatever, just make sure your phone is on silent so we don't have those ringtones going off again like we did last week. So... Um, so we're going to be in Romans uh, chapter 16. We're going to be in Romans for quite some time. I'm not entirely sure how far. I've just stopped planning past the next couple weeks lately, right? You know, the way 2020 is going, I don't know what the plan is going to be. But we're going to be in Romans for a while unless something changes. So um, in August of 1950 in the town of Americus, Georgia, uh, the Rehoboth Baptist Church was having a congregational meeting. How many of you have ever attended a congregational meeting? How many of you enjoyed that experience? Some of you, oh, all right, I'm going to, I feel good about that. Maybe we've had some better congregational meetings. How many of you have had a miserable experience at a congregational meeting? Um, yes, I mean, we can tell some stories of, of those meetings. So they're having a congregational meeting, it's 1950, and the problem that is on the agenda, let's just start there, there is a problem on the agenda. Um, it's Clarence Jordan. He's the problem. He brought a church visitor. He brought a visitor to church, and so now this has made it into a congregational meeting. That's not really the problem. Uh, the visitor was an Indian Hindu named R.C. Sharma. Still not the problem because, of course, uh, it's not a problem that a Hindu needs to hear the gospel. Um, the problem was that his skin color was brown. And this is what had made it to the agenda of this congregational meeting. And the congregation voted two-thirds majority to expel Clarence and his wife Florence and many of the people that were close to them in this church. And so the vote is made to expel this family for inviting somebody who is brown into their church. And the main argument was this that they have brought people of other races into the services of the Rehoboth Baptist Church and have done this with the knowledge that such practices were not in accord with the practices of other members. 
And so removed this far, we can all be in agreement of how bad this situation was. That a congregation would vote to expel members from the church because they invited somebody of a different race to join them in their worship. Now, this is only one of thousands of stories that could be told of issues that divide churches. We could probably think of a, of a long list just within this church and our history, and then churches of Christ beyond that. Issues that become dividing lines for churches, divisions along the lines of race, along gender, along church practices and traditions, divorce and remarriage, legal ver- liberal versus conservative, progressive versus traditional, acapella versus instrumental. Um, in our own heritage, things like kitchen or no kitchen, or one cup or many cups, or whatever the issue is that becomes a dividing line for churches where we can't fellowship with one another. Now it seems that, that it's a mask or no mask that has become a dividing line of fellowship. And it's in that divide, in that place where where things are broken among people of faith, that the letter to Romans, to the the Romans is so important. That, That Paul's letter to the churches in Rome speaks to this idea of division, speaks to those who are in power and those who are weak, It deals with the same issues that we deal with. That there are powerful and there are privileged and those who want to control and define how things are done at the exclusion of others. But but Paul's theology that's presented in Romans deconstructs power and privilege, breaks this down, it turns power upside down, it denies that there is really any privilege at all. And, and the, the gospel of Jesus that's presented in the book of Romans brings a new peace. It's, it's a radical alternative to the Roman way of life. It's a radical alternative to the American way of life. That the gospel of Jesus presents for us a new peace. The peace of God. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to be going through Romans. We're launching into this new study. We're going to approach it a bit differently, though. Like I said, for some of you, this is going to be just skimming the surface. For others of you, it's going to be diving into Romans in a way that you have never looked at Romans before. And so we're going to try to balance the tension there, but we're going to do it a bit differently. Instead of starting at chapter 1, verse 1, and working through verse by verse, we're going to start at the end and work our way backwards. We're going to start at chapter 16, and then over the next several weeks, between now and Thanksgiving, we're going to look at Romans 12 through 16 and just be there for a while. And then after the new year, we'll start working our way back until we get to the beginning of Romans. When you look at Romans 12 through 16, it's, it's this chunk of Romans that kind of stands a bit alone, but also very dependent on what's been said before it. Paul has been building a case for chapter, in chapters 1 through 11, and in 12 through 16, we have what Scott McKnight calls a lived theology. 
that we're not talking about something abstract. We're not talking about something intellectual. We're not talking about something academic. And, and honestly, those are most of the ways I have seen Romans approached, which is why I have kind of avoided it at times. Because just an academic pursuit of a text falls short of what it means for us as people of faith today. And so when we dig into 12 through 16, we start to see that there is a lived theology, not just an academic theology that's going on here. Now, now to be sure, I have used many academic sources to get here, and so there is value to the academic study. But there's got to be more than that. What is the application for it? What is the lived theology? How does it affect me as an individual? How does it affect us as a community of faith? How do we read these words of Paul that were written so long ago and and have them speak life into us to give us direction, to give us a sense of peace, especially in the middle of this divide that we find ourselves in today? So as we look at the book of Romans, this is Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And actually, it's, it's the churches of Rome. There were, there were four or five house churches that were gathering in Rome, and he's writing this letter to these churches. And, and this letter ranks as one of the most significant of religious literature. It's one that has been studied. It's one that has had incredible impacts on the church it tells us of God and the world and, it, and what it means to be human in the world. It tells us of how Israel fits into that history and how Israel fits into the purposes of God. It, it shows how this community of faith brings together and holds together a whole new way of being. It's a radical alternative to the Roman way of life. And it's a letter that is, is complex with a mix of theology and mission, of, of biblical exposition, of historical exploration. At times it challenges deep intellectual thinking, but other times it stirs up emotional passion. And so it can be argued that there is no other book of the Bible that has done more in church history for shaping and renewing churches, approaching Romans radically changes our approach to church. N.T. Wright puts it this way, the church has found fresh fuel for faith and fresh energy for mission when it encounters Romans anew. That makes me want to dive in, doesn't it? To have a, a fresh faith, an energy for mission, like I want to encounter Romans in that way. And so when we go through Romans, we have these weighty matters that, that are wide-ranging. We have God's righteousness, God's love for sinners, God's unfailing grace, a hope for glory, an adoption to sonship, an indwelling of the Spirit, victory through suffering, foreign people made God's people, love over law. There's so much that's going on in Romans. And maybe the best way it can be summarized is in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the heart of it, the key of it, that Jesus died for us, and that radically changes 
who we are and the world that we live in. When we look at the city of Rome, where these house churches are meeting, we can have some sense of imagination of what that might have been. There's, there's many movies that have, have tried to, to characterize this time of history. We can see the ruins. We can see what it might have looked like, what this Roman city might have been like. But when we look at the city of Rome we, that, that Paul is addressing, we, we know that Rome thought of itself as the center of everything. This is where the entire world flowed in and out of, in their opinion. It was the center. There was a steady stream of commerce, of, of military, of immigrants, of slaves, all coming through Rome and bringing this incredible diversity into the city. And among those were the Jews. Even before, uh, before Jesus, for 200 years, Jews had lived in Rome had migrated there, had moved there, or more likely had come in as slaves after Pompey's conquest of Palestine in 63 BC. And so there, at the time of Jesus, there would have been this, this vibrant and, and strong Jewish community. There were synagogues that were gathering. There, were, there was special favor for the Jews under Julius Caesar and Augustus, where they were, they were able to, to express their own religious practices. They didn't have to follow the Roman and pagan religious practices. They, they, they had favor among these emperors, which is rather surprising, but so they were able to thrive through this time. And then the, church, the, the Christian church began to form, possibly from Roman Jews who had visited on the day of Pentecost or you know, visited Jerusalem for other occasions and had learned about Jesus and, and brought that faith back with them into their Jewish synagogues, or maybe it was the missionary work of Priscilla and Aquila that we read about in Acts. But sometime after the church was established in Rome, the Jewish support from the emperor eroded away. Under Claudius, he expelled the Jews from Rome, kicked them out because of some sort of dis dispute involving some man named Christos. And so this expulsion would have included the Jewish Christians who were still classified as Jew. And so all of these Jew, Jewish Christians would have left with the Jews, leaving behind only the Gentile Christian converts in the church. This is an important historical perspective to keep as we read through Romans over the weeks and months to come. That there is this divide that is growing because the Jewish Christians are forced out, the Gentile Christians have this time to establish their own practices that are separate from Torah observation. And then the Jewish Christians come back and suddenly things have changed. It was very disorienting for me to come back from sabbatical, right? Because things had kept going while I was gone. Thankfully, things didn't just fall apart and shut down. That's good. But I come back in and, and, and things have changed. Like, like they changed the computer in the back of the room while I was gone, the computer that I had worked so long and hard on. They didn't like the computer that I had, and none of you did either because it kept crashing. But they changed what I was doing. And Thomas added more chairs in here, and it was not symmetrical down the middle. <laughs> and so I had to rearrange this section this morning. 
to make sure I had a straight line through here, and it's still off. That's going to be a problem. You come back in after being gone, and people have changed the way you do things. And we're talking about significant historical things, significant things for the Jewish Christians to come into this environment and for those things to be uprooted. They're not talking about the chairs. They're talking about the very core of their religious identity has now been stripped away by those Gentile Christians who ran amok while they were gone. And you've got the Gentile Christians who are saying, you're coming in with all this Jewish tradition. We're going to get into more of that next week. But this background is important for understanding why some of the conflict was occurring here. But then Claudius dies. Nero comes in as emperor. And all of those rules that Claudius had set to expel the the Jews was gone. And so the Jews come back in under Nero. And this return creates this tension that we'll read more about next week. And it's sometime after this return that Paul is writing to these Roman churches, five or six house churches of 100 or 200 people. It's not a huge cathedral. It's not a huge auditorium. It's not hundreds of people in a space together. It's, it's these small gatherings in homes 100, 200 people divided out over five or six houses. And so this gives us a better sense of what is happening in Romans. That Romans 1 through 11 is really the place to start. That's the important meat of of what we're talking about. But for us to, to get there, we want to start in chapter 16 and work our way backwards. And so chapter 16 is just this final greeting It's the conclusion. It's the sincerely at the end of a letter. So let's read a few of these verses. I want you to look at this in your Bible because we're going to, I want you to skim through some of it and I'm not going to read all of it because it's a lot of names that I can't pronounce. Chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Chintrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house, at their house, one of the house churches. And then verse 6 through 15 gives a list of names and characteristics and descriptions of people. Just kind of skim through that for a moment. This variety of names, these recommendations of who they are and these encouragements, thankfulness, These are people who are are leading these churches, who are core members of these churches. He's identifying all of these, giving them a little bit of a shout out, right, at the end of this letter. And then finally in verse 16, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss, not during COVID. All the churches of Christ send 
greetings. And so this is the, the end of his chapter. And there's, there's some, some blessings and benedictions at the end of that. But I want to focus in on these people that he's talking about. Because there, there, there's no other letter that Paul writes that has this many people listed out in the conclusion. Now, now the first thing to notice is Paul's commendation of Phoebe. This is the first person he identifies She's wealthy, she's an influential woman, and her recommendation here is likely because she is the one that is carrying the letter. She is delivering the letter. She is the one that Paul has entrusted with what now we say is one of the most influential religious pieces of literature ever. And he has given this to Phoebe, this woman, to deliver to these Roman churches. Now, when someone delivered a letter in this time, it was often delivered not in written form, but it was delivered orally. And that oral delivery would have been to church to church, and it would have been performed, not just read. We don't really have this way of reading Scripture right now, where someone from memory stands before a group and performs the words of Paul. This is what Phoebe would have done. He probably, he probably spent time with Phoebe making sure she had it right, making sure that she was giving emphasis to the right things, giving her a little bit of backstory as to why he was talking certain ways. And so when Phoebe goes in to, to present this, to, to share this letter, she would have delivered it in a way that would have specifically addressed certain people. Talking about the weak and the strong. Talking about this group and that group. Talking about the divisions and making eye contact with that person thinking, I think Paul was thinking about you when he said that. There would have been this personification of Paul through Phoebe. They would have experienced Paul's personality, his priorities, his message, beyond just the words that were being said. And Paul calls Phoebe his sister, our sister. They here receive our sister to share this, not this highly trained intellectual professor from the university, not this orator that is, is highly qualified because of the size of church that he preaches at. But, but receive her as a sister, and she's going to share with you my heart for the Roman church. So when we get to Romans chapter 1, we are hearing and seeing and listening to Paul through the face of and voice of this woman, Phoebe. And so how would that be received? How would that be heard in this? And once again, remember, these are house churches. So this would be more like our life group. 15, 20, maybe 30 people tops in a home. And Phoebe coming to them and sharing this message to them. The second thing to notice as we look at this is Paul 
gives this long list of people that he greets. It's a list of families. It's a list of individuals, of couples, of households. They're likely the representative leaders of these five or six house churches. And that church in Rome did not look like our Sunday gatherings here. This is not a first century gathering. There weren't large cathedrals. There weren't large auditoriums. It was in homes. There would have been conversations and questions, and and the speakers would have been less public orators with spotlights and more of just, let's sit on our couch and talk about this. And so the list of people here would not have all been gathered in one location for the receiving of this. They would have been dispersed out through their homes And there's seven Jewish names, there's a few Latin names, the others have Greek names. And so just by going through this list, it's not really important for us to know who these people are, but just the fact that they're people. And there's this diversity of names. It's a mix of Jew and Latin and Greek. But the other thing that we see in this list of names is that that the women's leadership is clearly set apart That there is this dynamic in the church in Rome where Priscilla and Mary and uh, Junia and Perses and Rufus, this is why I didn't go through the whole list, Rufus's mother, Julia, there's this list of women who are taking significant roles of leadership within these house churches and their households. The way these households are described give us this perspective of of women's roles in these households, but it also makes it almost certain that there are slaves that are members of these households as well and members of these churches. And so we see really that the churches of Rome have this reality of Paul's line from Galatians 3.28 that says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. We see this lived out in the church in Rome. There is this diversity. And what Paul is, is calling for And what he is describing in in this, he's calling for this sense of unity that occurs through describing it as a sibling relationship. That in Christ we transcend ethnicity and gender and status and we are all brothers and sisters. This is the community that he's addressing. This will be the community that will be the first to hear this incredible letter. So why does this matter? Why is this important? A lot of this is background for our reading as we continue on next week. And so we're going to dive into that. But why are we starting Romans here? Why do we go backwards? Most studies of Romans, especially if you have very limited time, like a sermon, would just skip chapter 16 altogether. Stay in chapters 1 through 11. Maybe get to 12 and probably most likely skip chapter 16. But we're starting at 16 because it gives us a sense of who Paul is addressing, who he's talking to, because that gives us a sense of the dynamic of the church and the division that's happening there. What is it that is of concern to him? Next week, we're going to go backwards into chapter 15. But in 16, we we see who Paul is addressing, we see how he is addressing, and then in chapter 15 next week, we're going to see why he's writing. 
And so as we look at this long list of names, starting with Phoebe and working down the list, it gives us names to the people who are receiving this message. It isn't so much that we know who they are. It isn't that we know their identity or what it is, but they are people. They are people with names. They're people with struggles through division and power plays. And Paul is giving them identity. He's giving them personhood. He's giving them a name. Paul is acknowledging their position. He's acknowledging their struggle. He's acknowledging their differences and the division that exists between them. In the book Anatomy of Peace, which is one of my my go-to for management and conflict resolution, in Anatomy of Peace, the authors talk about conflict resolution within organizations and within families. And there's two different sides. There's, there's the heart at peace, and a heart at peace deals with conflict productively. And then there is the heart at war. And the heart at war cannot get to reconciliation. It cannot get to conflict resolution. Where the heart is at war, it is at deadlock. It's deadlocked, it's unable to move forward. And so the key difference between the heart at peace and the heart at war is, that the, is, is the two focuses. One focuses on the other being an object to be beat, to be controlled, to be manipulated. <coughs> the opponent has no humanity in that. Right, so the ob, it's just an object to be beat. But the heart at peace looks at the other as a person as somebody who has fears and concerns and wants and needs. There's humanity to it. They, they have the same things that we have. We just are defining them differently. When we look at others as objects, there can be no peace. The division will only grow. When we look at the other as a person, who has hopes and dreams and fears and needs, when we look at the other as a person, then there is hope to get to peace, to find reconciliation in that division. We don't treat the other as an object. Paul flips that and says that we are brothers and sisters. And so when we think about The things that divide us, whether it's us or the much bigger us, the culture around us, what are the things that divide us? Can you think of a few? Maybe just two colors could define that completely. Like, what are the things that divide us? And how are we speaking of the other? Because in this church in Rome, there are these two sides, and Paul gives them names and faces and identity and humanity, and it's only in that that we're able to find peace in the divide. It's only in treating others humanly, as people that we have any chance of peace. And so how do we talk about our opponents? How do we talk about the other side? Now just a quick disclaimer, 
for anybody who's afraid that there is some big conflict going on within this church that you don't know about. I am not addressing some big conflict that's occurring right now you know, secretly and subversively so that you're, you're missing out on it, right? So, so we're, we're in a good place, okay? I'm not, I'm not speaking in an in, in attack on some conflict that is brewing that you, you're not a part of. But we certainly can see how we can get there through our history. We certainly can look beyond just the gathering of Montgomery Church of Christ and look at the church as a whole and see who are our brothers and sisters that we're not treating like brothers and sisters. People that we have voted to expel, not in a formal congregational meeting, but just in our words and attitudes and actions. And so we, we are in a difficult season. And I don't know what you thought when you saw that we were going to be in this series called Peace and the Divide with you know, conveniently blue and red graphics. We're not going to be talking about the election specifically. We're not going to be talking about Republican versus Democrat. We're not going to be talking about positions or issues on the ballot. But we are going to be talking about what it means to be brothers and sisters with a heart of peace. A peace from Jesus that completely flips the world upside down. That cannot even be comprehended by the political world, by the corporate world, by the culture around us. And we serve as ambassadors in that. How we speak about others matters. So I'm looking forward to diving into this with us. To, to, to be going through this in this particular season, in this particular time. And so I want to encourage you, be, just be reading through Romans 12 through 15. We're going to be jumping around in 12 through 15 over the next several weeks, um, looking at some different themes. So we're not going to go verse by verse. There's going to be some different themes through that. So just be kind of in that uh, in your time this week, and we'll be in chapter 15 next week. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you so much for these words. We thank you for the way that you treat us, that, that we are our brothers and sisters in this space, that we are, we're equals, that there's no power, there's no privilege, there's, there's no hierarchy, that we all come to you equally broken, equally sinful, equally one that Jesus has died for. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want us to, to move our time to the communion table. And so if you have those plastic bags, I want you to hold on to that. Don't, don't dive into it yet. Just open it up and pull out that cracker and just, just hold that cracker for a moment. If you didn't get a bag coming in, there's some in the basket in the back. We have this great message of Romans that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we remember that each Sunday as we come to the table together. And there will be a day that we can come to tables together again. But right now we, we hold this and remember 
the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the body of Jesus. I thank you for his gift to us through his death on the cross. It's in his name we pray, amen. And then we take that cup, carefully peel that layer over, open it up without popping it all over your shirt. We have the blood of Jesus that gives us hope for a future. We celebrate that this morning together. God, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. We take this cup, we pray that you, you bless the taking of this cup. That as we, we drink this, we're reminded of our hope for the future. A hope that is found through Jesus alone. It's in his name we pray.